Welcome back. This is a blog post series, specifically and, well, not specifically, but from an older post I did originally in 2017, or a series of posts called Music, a Tool to Change Mood, a Personal History. So in uh, this one, I'm going to talk about that and expand uh, on it. Could be short, could be long. I'm not sure yet, because, you know, I wing things. So... First things first, this podcast is brought to you by Urban Tactics Krav Maga, turning lambs into lions. You can follow us on social media, Instagram, Urban Tactics Krav Maga, Twitter, Urban Tactics KM, Facebook, Urban Tactics Krav Maga. You can also get the older posts, uh, uh, older blog, no, older podcasts on the, on the blog there, utkmblog.com. You just click on podcasts and scroll down. You have all of the older ones. Even the less refined ones are still there. You can also uh, sign up for PAL courses there if you're in Metro Vancouver. I run the PAL courses periodically. That's the firearms course required to get your firearms license. I recommend everyone do that now, not later, for various reasons. And, of course, if you love the podcast, you can actually support us directly on the menu at utcamblog.com under support us. You can simply donate to us, though it's not a, a tax write-off because we're not a charity. And some people have already done that, so thank you. And if you want to just support us outright, you can do that. And you are getting something because content that you like to listen to. You can also educate yourself by going to utkmu.com and signing up for one of the various packages. It's still a work in progress, but you basically have the entire nov uh, beginner and novice curriculums up there in video format. And of course, the more more people supporting UTKM globally, the more content I can do. Perhaps one day I'll even be able to hire someone to help me, and then I can pump out a crap load of content. Um, of course, if you want to volunteer for the services, please feel free to reach out for us, to us, to me specifically. Right, so you can go to utkmu.com and sign up. You know, that's as little as $15 a month. Or uh, you can also uh, support us on the support page, support us on utkmblog.com. You can click on the various uh, Amazon affiliate links that I have, mostly for books I recommend. Uh, I have my coffee and a very respected supplement that I use to help my body stay healthy. It helps with mitochondrial DNA, etc. Um, sometimes things are worth the price that you pay because I feel better doing that stuff in general. So if you want to support this podcast, you can do that by going to utkmblog.com forward slash support us and choosing one of the three ways you can support this podcast. So I guess that's it for now. Without further ado, here's your podcast. You're listening to The Warrior's Day. Brought to you by Urban Tactics Krav Maga. Turning lambs into lions. Okay, so as I mentioned, this one is uh, based around a series I did originally in 2017. I uh, re uh, reposted it and in 2019. I've done some minor changes. Grammatically, again, this was done before I had a good editor, uh, or in-between editors, rather. So uh, it's not as clean 
as I would like it, but you know, it gets the point across, right? So it loosely discusses, uh, very loosely, uh, in my journey with mental health issues and music, uh, going as a as a storytelling uh, narrative through my journey through the the military. So. I was roughly in the military in IDF between 2019 and 2011, give or take. Uh, I served in the uh, Givati Regiment, in the uh, Shaked Battalion Brigade, I'm not sure, I can't remember the translations, into Canadian military terms or American for that matter. It was one of the five major infantry regiments though. And, uh, you know, I moved to another country where I didn't really speak the language, though culturally it's similar to what I'm used to. I discussed that loosely. But uh, I think this podcast, you know, this may be a short one. This may be a long one. I'm not really sure at this point. But um, it's it's to do with mental health largely. I, it, you know, as I'm recording this, it, it, we're still in a minor lockdown in British Columbia and there are other parts of the world still in major lockdowns things that I think are absolutely absurd. If you're listening to the stuff I say regularly, I don't think politicians are following science. I don't think scientists are following science. I think you're seeing massive global mob mentality out of fear. And I just think that this is a mistake. But it all comes down to mental health, really, because the mental and physical health of people has been degrading severely because of this. It was predictable, it was called out, and people people were called conspiracy theories for stating the obvious. Um, I'm not going to get too much into the whole COVID thing, but I am going to discuss mental health. Now, uh, in particular music, but I, I think in general, so I allude to it in this posts, these posts, that um, as an individual, I have never really fit in. Um, and that has caused a strain on my mental health. Now, there is a history of depression and anxiety in my family. This is common amongst a lot of Jews, particularly anxiety, although our family specifically for depression. However, growing up, nobody talked about it, nobody knew about it, nobody really acknowledged it. Even to this day, getting anyone in my family to discuss it openly is basically impossible. And I could be completely wrong, but I was probably one of the first people to open up about it. The thing is, growing up, I didn't even know I had depression. I didn't know there was a problem. You know, you just think it's normal. Now, part of it for me is to do with I don't fit in. If you were socially ostracized for whatever reason, of course, you're going to feel negative thoughts inside. And, you know, that's where the music comes in. I, I use music without knowing it one way or other to enhance my negative mood or enhance my positive mood. And we have a tendency as humans to use music um, for a variety of mood things. Now, nowadays, I, I mostly spend my time listening to uh, podcasts because the same amount of time I spend listening to the same song over and over again for three hours, I can educate myself. Super happy for podcasts. Um, but occasionally when I'm really stressed, I will still throw on music to enhance my mood, usually make me feel a little bit better. So, you know, I'm not an expert on mental health by traditional definitions. I did go to school for psychology. Uh, I ended up with an associate's degree. I was in third year, though. Uh, I probably had another two semesters if I really wanted to finish, but three realistically, so another year. 
I left for mental health reasons because I was being ostracized once again because though I'm not a religious conservative, I have conservative-leaning views. And if it's a shocker to many of you that on academic campuses and academia, they detest you if you have such ideas and they're not willing to have open and discuss. So once again, I found myself as an adult ostracized with mental health issues. Now, the difference between now and then is I have learned and grown and changed that I'm generally quite happy with myself internally. I don't have negative self-talk anymore, um, though the outside world still often looks at me quite negatively for a variety of reasons. I see things differently. I say things that people don't like. I don't play by the standard social etiquettes of don't say this, say this. I don't, I'm not going to be a sheep as I indicate. And I'm sorry, it's a legitimate thing because mob mentality is a scientifically proven thing. Bullying has not disappeared in this world. It's just gone on the internet and gone into mob mentality at a greater pace and rate than it ever has. And maybe I'll do another series on that. So you can understand that if you don't have the, growing up, if you don't have the tools to deal with stuff and you don't have good mentors, I did not have any. I still don't have any good mentors. Um, it's very disappointing. But it is what it is. And as a result, I kind of learned to take care of myself. Now, um, you know, growing up, I was bullied because I was always a little different. You know, I was chubby, so I got made fun of that. Uh, I just was, in, I, I would say, intelligent compared to the average person, and I didn't fit in with the school system. So you can see how everything comes collapsing on. And I, you know, I remember being quite young and, and being reasonably popular, though I noticed some social ostracizing. And then at a certain point, I found another friend who was also very intelligent, and I ended up spending all my time with them. And when they moved away, I tried to reintegrate back into with everyone else, and it just never went good from there. I had realized I may think and see things differently than the average person, and I don't really fit in with them. Then from being chubby, I, uh, in grade eight or nine, I got myself on my own. Nobody helped me realize I wasn't eating properly. Still not great, but I got rid of things like Kraft Dinner and Coca-Cola every day. I actually didn't end up drinking um, pop for five years straight, I think. I was quite strict on it. And I ended up working out and losing a lot of weight. Still got made fun of. People just found another reason for it. And just throughout my social skills are not great, right? And then I went to the, uh, then I started working in, in, in the professional fields and I realized I still don't fit in. I, nobody cares that much about me and I can't communicate with other people. And it was very difficult. And then I, uh, due to a few things going wrong, I said, fuck it, I'm going to the IDF. And in the IDF, I realized, well, I didn't actually realize, but I was definitely suffering from depression, more social ostracization, isolation, extreme stress due to sleep deprivation. You know, at the end of the army, I actually, when I wasn't, we were in between training, I actually had gained a lot of weight, right? When I came back, I ended up doing literally nothing for four or five months. I mean, nothing. But it, I started working again. I started going out and socializing. And uh, I, I'll get into it a little later about my uh, major m mental breakdown. But let's sort of get back to uh, the music aspect. So I, I pulled up a few articles. Again, if you listen to me, I know I, I don't really like doing that much research. I want to just read stuff. But uh, I'm going to read off a few things. So this is... The Impact of Music and Imagery on Physical Performance and Arousal, Studies of coordinated Coordination and Endurance. 
Uh, it was published in the Journal of Sports Behavior in March 1992, Volume 15, Issue 1. So it's just a short little synopsis they have here. I'll just read it to you. The impact of music and imagery on physical performance and arousal, studies, coordination, etc. Lisa Domni, Emil Kwan Mingo, and Christina Lee, University of Newcastle, Australia. Researcher examining the effects of music on behavior is scarce. This is in 92, by the way. Despite the ubiquity of music in the everyday... I'm just going to... Let me zoom in. I have bad vision now. Uh, everyday lives of people on of all cultures, listening to music has been shown to influence emotional state and its use of preparation strategy is no well known in sporting folklore, but has not been evaluated formally. This paper reports on two studies of the relationship between music, heart rate, and performance in physical tasks. In the first study, 30 subjects performed a daring dart-throwing task on three occasions without music after listening to slow classical music and after listening to fast modern music. Performance did not differ across conditions, but heart rate was significantly lowered after listening to either type of music. In the second study, the possible relationship between music and imagery was examined by comparing preparation with imagery alone or imagery plus music for performance in muscular endurance tasks. Task performance improved equally over baseline for both groups. The imagery plus music group showed a significant increase in the heart rate during preparation, but heart rate was not related to task performance. It appears that music may affect arousal, but that for the tasks at least, there is no corresponding effect on behavior. Further systematic research examining a broader range of tasks and types of music may indicate more about the psychological effects of music and the relevance to physical activity. And then it goes on in another language. So this is actually quite interesting. So, y you know, this has been 92, but it's still the links of this, uh, of music and performance, physically are, are still hard to say. It's a complex topic. You know, I did a, a pilot study when I was doing university about music and performance. Whole shenanigans around that bullshit nonsense that I ended up going through for that study. But... I can't. I couldn't find the studies I used at the time, but we were referencing studies that it's basically indicate. And this, I, I don't know. This must have been in 2012 through 15, maybe. And they indicated the ones I remember off the top of my head that BPM can affect a person's performance, but more precisely, do the people like it? So that's why I think a lot of studies go sideways when studying how impact physically uh performance because if you're playing music they don't like they're not as going to be they're not going to be as motivated and it's going to be quite complicated um but what is interesting about that this little synopsis is it affects their probably blood pressure and their heart rate even if the performance isn't affected music clearly has effects on the body right and uh, in my little pilot study, we didn't have a measurable, noticeable difference, but that's because, again, did the people like the music? Also, our sample groups were really small, and most of the people didn't seem very motivated to be there in the first place because they were doing push-ups and squats. And for most university students who focus too much on their grades and studies and not enough on overall health and wellness, uh, sucked at it. And that's part of the reason I got in trouble because I basically pointed out that college students are unhealthy and lazy. Uh, and it got crazy because people have hurt feelings and can't accept the reality that they're out of shape. Um, but yeah, I found an even better article here from the University of Central Florida, and I'll, I'll post these. 
and this is, you know, I'll read quite a lot of it. Your Brain on Music, a popular class breakdown on how our brains respond to music. Since 2006, two UCF professors, neuroscientists, uh, I'm going to butcher these names, Kimonobo Sagaya, probably Japanese, and world-renowned violinist Ayako Yonetani, I'm going to go with Japanese on these ones, I'm guessing, have been teaching one of the most popular courses in the Burnett Honors College, Music and the Brain. Explores how music impacts the brain functioning and human behavior, including by reducing stress, pain, and symptoms of depression, as well as improving cognitive and motor skills, spatial temporal learning, and neurogenesis which is the brain's ability to produce neurons. Sugaya and Yonetani teach how people with neurogenic neurodegenerative diseases such as Alzheimer's and Parkinson also respond positively to music. Usually in the late stages, Alzheimer's patients are unresponsive, Sugaya says, but once you put in the headphones that play their favorites, a very key thing, music, their eyes light up. They start moving and sometimes singing. The effect lasts maybe 10 minutes or so even after you turn off the music. This can be seen on an MRI, where lots of different parts of the brain light up. He says, we sat down with the professors, who are also husbands and wife, and asked them to explain which part of the brain is activated by the music. And I pause there for a second. There is a field of... Uh, psychology called cognitive psychology. Now, when I was taking it in university, they couldn't have been more fucking boring because what they would do is they essentially talk about famous cognitive studies and break them down. It's just so boring. But cognitive psychology is probably one of the most important areas because they actually take theories, hypotheses, and use brain scans and other physical measurable attributes to determine human behavior. So often I think it is not taken seriously because it's, at least as I was taught, it was boring as fuck, okay? So if you're a cognitive psychology professor, I think it's one of the more important areas of psychology. Learn to fucking teach, side note. Now, I'd never learned with these individuals, so I'm sure they're much better than the garbage teachers I had on this topic. But a lot of psychology is not real science because they don't actually measure they use surveys and opinion and that's why areas like social psychology really pick up because it makes you feel good and it's easy to learn and you can bullshit but the reality they're not very scientific while cognitive psychology is much more scientific because you can actually measure it so for example if you think you have depression anxiety this guess what if you get into an mri you can actually measure it now if you have the money go pay for it it's not going to be cheap lots and lots of money lots of money if you live in a country like Canada, they're not going to pay for that because every person and their mother would want to get this study. And then, you know, then we could actually tailor medical advice for, for cognition and brain function and mental health for the individual people. But there's a limited amount of MRIs. There's a limited amount of people who know how to do this stuff properly. The system is slow and needs to get it out of its own way to adapt. So if you really want to know what mental state you're in, guess what? They can tell through brain scans nowadays. They, they know what a depressed brain looks like. They know what anxiety, PTSD brains look like. They can tell. So you could go through a year or two long procedure to figure it out by trial and error with a shitty doctor who really doesn't understand this stuff or a hacky psychiatrist who never got through their own bullshit and is giving hacky generic advice. Or you could pay the money to get a brain scan and figure out what exactly your problem is. 
if you in fact think it's a problem. Anyways, I'm going to continue with this. So it's actually, I'm just going to read through the basic part first, and then there's this sort of interactive thing. So how the brain responds to music. It says click on image and explore, uh, and it goes through the various areas. I'm just going to scroll down for a sec. So, and again, this is uh, on the ucf.edu page. So what music is best? Turns out, whether it's rock and roll, jazz, hip-hop, or classical, your gray matter prefers the same music you do. It depends on your personal background, Yonatai says. For a while, researchers believed that classical music increased brain activity and made its listeners smarter, a phenomenon called the Mozart effect. I'll actually talk about that. It's not necessarily true, says Sagaya and Yonatai. In recent studies, they found that people with dementia respond better to music they grew up in listening to. If you play someone's favorite music, different parts of the brain light up, Sagoya explains. That means memories associated with music are emotional memories, which never fade out, even in Alzheimer's patients. And then it lists, music can change your ability to perceive time, tap into your primal fear, reduce seizures, make you a better communicator, make you stronger, boost your immune system, assist you in repairing brain damage, make you smarter. Ev I'll talk about that one later. Evoke memories, help Parkinson patients. Did you know, use it or lose it, we are all born with more neurons than we actually need. Typically, by the age of eight, our brains do a major neuron dump, removing any neurons perceived as unnecessary, which is why it's easier to teach language and music to younger children. If you learn music as a child, your brain becomes designed for music. Side note, zero to five kids don't always, a they're not able to communicate that they're learning, but they are. And unfortunately, in the Western world at least, we treat our children like children <laughs> you should though but when it comes to education they can pick up a lot more than you think you won't realize it they won't know until you're older but because we're obsessed with measuring everything precisely we don't just let them learn and they you end up not teaching them enough when they're younger hence i think is a big part of the reason at least in north america we have a giant idiocracy of people who didn't learn enough when they were younger because there's too much focus on uh emotional state which is important but the way it could they go about it is uh, uh, bullshit they're not actually teaching the important knowledge aspects we've swayed too much to the emotion anyway all this instrument this is back to this thing according to the national geographic a forty thousand year old vulture bone flute is the world's oldest musical instrument that's interesting i did not know that hairy cells is talking about the ears the ear only has 3500 inner hair cells Compared to the more than 100 million photoreceptors around the eyes, yet our brains are remarkably adaptable to music. Sing along. In the Sesetho language, the verb for singing and dancing are the same. Uh, hobina. As it is assumed the two actions occur together. These are just fun facts, by the way. Seasonal songbirds. Sugiya has also conducted neurological studies on the songbirds. His research has found that canaries stop singing every autumn when the brain cells responsible for song generations die. However, the neurons grow back over the winter months, and the birds learn their songs over again in the spring. He takes this as a sign that music may increase neurogenic genesis in the brain. Interesting idea. So let's just go back. Get started, it says. The frontal lobe. So it's going to go through all the areas of the brain that are specific and discuss how music affects them. So, frontal lobe, what? Used in thinking, decision-making, and planning. Humans actually have a very large frontal lobe, by the way. How? The frontal lobe is the most important to being human. We have big frontal lobes compared to other animals. By listening to music, we can enhance its functions. Temporal lobe. 
processes what we hear. We use language center to appreciate music, which spans both sides of the brain through language and words are interpreted in the left hemisphere while music and sounds are interpreted in the right hemisphere. If you didn't know, the brain has two spheres connected, or two, they're not really spheres, they just call them that. Broca's area, what? Enables us to produce speech, super important. How? We use this part of the brain to express music, Yonatai says, playing Yonatani, sorry, playing in an instrument may improve your ability to communicate better. Wernick's area, comprehend written and spoken language. We use this part of the brain to analyze and enjoy music. Occipital lobe, that's in the back of the head. What processes we see? Professional musics use the occipital cortex, which is the visual cortex, when they listen to music, while the layperson like me use the temporal lobe. The auditory and language center, this suggests that musicians might visualize a music score when they are listening to the music. So what they're saying is you can take your visualization practices into your head. And I know uh, some people uh, see sounds, synesthesia, where they can see auras or sounds in uh, uh, colors in their visual acuity because their occipital lobe is probably doing something different than, than other people. It's pretty cool. I know someone who said they have that. It's pretty cool. Cerebellum, it's at the base and the back of the brain. Coordinates movement and stores physical memory. An Alzheimer's patient, even if he doesn't recognize his wife, could still play a piano if he learned it when he was young because playing it has become muscle memory. Those memories in the cerebellum never fade out. So the more you practice when you're younger, the more likely you are to keep it. just realized I was speaking to a weird angle into the microphone. Nucleus accumbens. What? Seeks pleasure and reward is sort of in the middle internal areas of the brain. A big role in addiction as it releases the neurotransmitter dopamine. How? Music can be a drug and a very addictive drug because it's also acting on the same part of the brain as illegal drugs. Music increases dopamine in the nucleus accumbens, similar to cocaine. Amygdala processes and triggers emotion. Music can control your fear and make it ready to fight and increase your pleasure. When you feel shivers go down your spine, the amygdala is activated. Some people don't get that response. I'll talk about it later. Hippocampus, sort of mid-lower area, smaller area of the brain, produces and retrieves memories, regulates emotions, responses, and helps us navigate. Consider the central processing unit of the brain. It's one of the first regions of the brain to be affected by Alzheimer's disease, leading to confusion and memory loss. How? Music may increase neurogenesis. Neurogenesis, by the way, just means... Uh, regrowth of neurons in the in the hippocampus allowing production of the new neurons and improving memory Yonataniac. keep saying it a hebrew way hypothalamus what maintains the body status quo linking the endocrine and nervous systems and produces and releases essential hormones and chemicals that regulate thirst appetite sleep mood heart rate it's like your subconscious body functions essentially if you plan on playing Mozart, for example, heart rate and blood pressure are reduced. Corpus callosum. It enables the left and right hemispheres to communicate, allowing for coordinated body movements as well. So basically connects the two sides of the brain. How? As a musician, you want to have the right-hand side and the left-hand side of the brain coordinating, so they talk to each other. This allows pianists, for example, to translate notes on a sheet to the keys their fingers hit to produce music. And Pudumin processes rhythm and regulates body movement and coordination. 
Music can increase dopamine in this area, and music increases our response to rhythm. By doing this, music temporarily stops the symptoms of Parkinson's disease. Rhythmatic music, for example, has been used to help Parkinson's patients function, such as getting up and down, even walking, because Parkinson's patients need assistance in moving, and music can help them kind of like a cane. Unfortunately, after music stops, the pathology returns. It's pretty interesting, you know, and they did it quite graphically, so I'll, I'll post the link uh, about this. And uh, it just gives you a basic idea of areas of the brain. So you can learn some basic biology uh, of the brain and you can understand how the music affects each area. Um, just a thing, it is a myth that uh, we, you know, we only use 10% of brain. It's more to do with that certain areas of the brain activate at certain times. So at any one given time, we may not be maximizing the brain's efficiency all at once because the brain just doesn't operate like that. Again, I'm not a neuroscientist, so I am not the expert on that, right? So it's sort of a, a couple of introductory about a little bit of my mental health history, um, and also music and the brain itself and how you can use it as a tool. Again, you can use it for the positive and the negative. So let's take a look at this first uh, post of the series that inspired this, this, this uh, podcast episode. Music, a tool to change, part one. Music, a tool to change mood, a personal history, part one. Music is something that has been in the history of man for as long as most can tell. It is sound, vibration, the transfer of energy that creates soothing or intense emotional reactions. Some of us are even lucky enough to get goosebumps when we hear music, myself included. Music is ingrained in most cultures, in one form or another and can be used for the most beautiful intentions or used to manipulate you into buying something you wouldn't otherwise have done. In 1991, a French researcher, Dr. Alfred A. Tomatis, wrote about something he called the Mozart effect in his book, Pourquoi Mozart? Tomatis did research into auditory effort effects of music to help with various mental ailments. In a follow-up study published in Nature in 1993, Rauscher et al., showed using the Mozart effect that listening to particular music could definitely help with spatial reasoning and enhance, enhance IQ scores. In short, something we have always known intuitively that music enhances mood was shown by the Mozart effect and numerous other studies that music can improve performance and mood both for good and or bad. Now that the obvious is out of the way, Let's get into my personal history with music and how two artists in particular help inspired me and get me through some tough times. When I was younger at home, my parents used to put on things like classical music, opera, and some form of news radio. I used to fall asleep to things like Enya, Sarah Brightman, Andrea Bracicelli, and Peter and the Wolf as narrated by Captain Jean-Luc Picard himself. Uh, I mean, Patrick Stewart. I often forget that when I was younger, I was exposed to such things as it was so long ago, but once in a while when I take the time to think back, I remember I do like such music. Outside of that, however, music was not a part of my life as a family, as my family in general is not of the musical variety. As I grew older in elementary school, for some reason or another, I lost interest in music completely. I didn't understand my peers' obsession with the top 10 hits on the local radio station. Among other things, this was the 
begging of the realization that I am not really like other people. Perhaps I didn't understand why they all just blindly liked the same thing, like sheep, and I rejected music because I, though I didn't know it yet, I, I always am and always have been a wolf. Because of this, at the time, I never used music for the good or for the bad. Enter high school and the standard years of angst. I don't recall exactly how or why I started listening to it, but I listened to angrier music like Slipknot D12 or other such things. At the time, I used to enhance my anger, my hate, and the feelings of loneliness and despair as I slipped closer to the dark side. Though I had friends, I certainly never fit in, and looking back, I feel like they only kept me around out of boredom or to have another person for their games. Post-Army, learning what real brotherhood and friendship were like, I realized none of them were ever really my friends. It's a shame I didn't know that at the time, for perhaps I would have found different friends and had happier times. Later in high school, I found a different group of friends, those who were also social outcasts, but not socially inept. Though through them, I found things like classic rock, the Beatles, Guns N' Roses, ACDC, and at the time, my favorite, Led Zeppelin. Though not any happier with myself or any less angry, at least I found music that would no longer enhance such emotions, but instead would foster a more open view of the world around me. As time passed, happiness, finally free of my prison of the school system, a place not for people like myself who don't fit the mold in any way, shape, or form, and someone completely to this day unwilling to be a sheep and conform to the lies and laziness of the powers that be. It was at this time I started branching out into alternative music and EDM and other similar genres. On January 18, 2006, only a few months free, while watching the late night show, I saw a performance. Matis Yahoo live on Letterman. Yes, you guessed it, Matis Yahoo. If you had read my stories on the Camp My Way experience, you would have noticed several of his songs. Though Matis Yahoo has evolved from his previous, pers uh, previous personal as a Hasidic Jew singing reggae, his music has always spoken to me. Though I am not in any way religious man in any way, I think Matas Yahoo's lyrics and music do a beautiful job at capturing what it means to be human. Whether I knew it or not, like the butterfly effect, changing the channel on this night and at this time would set things in motion for things to come and lay the path for my future life. Okay, so do you remember what kind of music you listened to when you were younger? Or why? Do you just listen to what other people listen to? Or do you actually enjoy it? Um, something to consider because social pressures uh, kick in there. Um, so I just going to, I linked, uh, said something about goosebumps in that one. Uh, talk to the mic. And I'm going to read an article, a mentalfloss.com article. Why does music give you the chills? This is from August uh, 2nd, 2016 by Lucas Riley. Really? Yeah. When your playlist strikes all the right chords, your body can go into a physiological joyride. Your heart rate increases, your pupils dilate, your body temperature rises, blood redirects to your legs, your cerebellum mission control for your body movement because you're more active. 
your brain flushes with dopamine and a tingly chill whisks down your back. About 50% of people get the chills when listening to music. I am one of them, as I said. Research shows that's because music stimulates an ancient reward pathway in the brain, encouraging dopamine to flood to the striatium, a part of the forebrain activated by addiction, reward, motivation. Music, it seems, may affect our brains the same way that sex, gambling, potato chips do. Strangely, those dopamine levels can peak several seconds before the song's special moment. That's because your brain is a good listener. It's constantly predicting what's going to happen. Evolutionary speaking, it's a handy habit to have. Making good predictions is essential for survival. But music is tricky. It can be unpredictable, teasing our brains and keeping those dopamine triggers guessing. And what's that's where the chills may come in, because when you finally hear the long-awaited chord, the stradium sighs with dopamine soaks satisfaction, and bam, you get the chills. The greater the buildup, the greater the chills. Gray areas. But there is competing theories. Neuroscientists... Oh, I'm going to butcher this one. Yak or Jack, probably Yak, J-A-A-K, Panksep, for example, discovered the sad music triggers chills more often than happy music. He argues that melancholy tune activates an ancient chill-inducing mechanism, a distress response our ancestors felt when separated from the family. When a ballad makes us feel nostalgic or wistful, the evolutionary design kicks into gear. What's interesting about Panksepp's theory, though, is that chills don't sadden most people. The experience is overwhelmingly positive. Recent research shows that sad music actually evokes positive emotions. Sadness experiences through the art is more pleasant than the sadness you experience from a bad day at the office. And this may hint at another theory. The amygdala, which processes your emotions, responds uniquely to music. A somber tune may activate a fear response in the amygdala, making your hair stand on end. When that happens, your brain quickly reviews whether there is any real danger, and when it realizes there is nothing to worry about, that fear response becomes positive. The fear subsides, but the chills remain. Anything goes. You can feel chills from any genre, whether it's from Mozart, Madonna, Tango, or Techno. It's the structure, not the style, that counts. Goosebumps more often occur when something unexpected happens, a new instrument enters, the form shifts, the volume suddenly dims, it's all about the element of surprise. Well, maybe. The most powerful chills may occur when you know what's going coming next, when expectations are being met. The nucleus accumbens becomes more active. This ties back to the dopamine-inducing guessing game our brain likes to play. As a result, being familiar can enhance thrills of the thrill of the chills. Perhaps why 90% of mu uh, musicians report feeling the chills. Your personality matters too. Scientists at UNC Greensboro found that people who are more open to new experiences are more likely to feel a quiver down their spine, possibly because open individuals are more likely to play instruments. Meanwhile, research in Germany found that people felt chills were less likely to be thrill-seekers, but were more reward-driven. Interesting. I could say a lot about that. So I thought this was interesting. Um... If I get the chills, I'm an open person. People say I'm not, but it's like, uh, yeah, I am. I just want to be convinced. Anyways, enough about me, right? So if you can see, it plays a lot on, on, on the dopamine of, of the body and, and ties into the similar areas of the brain as does addiction, which probably explains why people get addicted to songs because they're actually getting a dopamine uh, rush, which is what often we get when we get uh, addicted to things. We get a do dopamine rush to our body and our body feels good and therefore we feel good. 
Um, so even it was as mentioning, even negative songs give you that sense of dopamine. Now, uh, before I move on, let's just talk about what is dopamine. So I just pulled up an article from WebMD. Every doctor has hated sight. Remember when it first came out, all the doctors were like, no, don't go to the... Anyways, what is dopamine? Dopamine is a type of neurotransmitter your body makes and your nervous system uses it to send messages between nerve cells. That's why it's sometimes called a chemical messenger. Dopamine plays a role in how we feel pleasure. It's a big part of our unique human ability to think and plan. It helps us strive, focus, and find things interesting. Your body spreads along the four major pathways in the brain. Like most other systems in the body, you don't notice it, or maybe even don't know about it until there's a problem. Too much or too little can lead to a vast range of health issues. Some are serious, like Parkinson's disease. Others are much less dire. Dopamine basics. It's made uh, made through the br- brain... Ugh. It's made in the brain through a two-step process. First, it changes the amino acid tyrosine to a substance called dopa, and then into dopamine. It affects many parts of your behavior and physical functions, such as learning, motivation, heart rate, blood vessel function, kidney function, lactation, sleep, mood, attention, control, nausea, and vomiting, pain, processing, movement. Role in mental health. It's hard to pinpoint a single cause of most mental health disorders and challenges, but they're often linked to too much or too little dopamine in different parts of the brain, such as schizophrenia. Decades ago, researchers believed the symptoms stemmed from hyperactive dopamine system. Now we know that some are due to too much of the chemical in certain parts of the brain. This includes hallucinogens and delusions. A lack of it in other parts can cause different signs, such as a lack of motivation and desire. Just so you know, people with depression have fucked up dopamine. I am definitely one of those. ADHD. No one knows for sure what causes it attention deficit hyperactivity disorder some research show it may be due to a shortage of dopamine the problem may be due to your genes though adhd drugs ritalin work by boosting dopamine drug misuse and addiction drugs such as cocaine can cause a big fast increase in dopamine in your brain that satisfies your natural reward system in a big way but repeated drug use also raises the threshold for this kind of pleasure This means you need to take more to get the same high. Meanwhile, drugs make your body less able to produce dopamine naturally. This leads to emotional lows when you're sober. Dopamine in other diseases. It also plays a role in diseases that aren't related to mental health. One of these is Parkinson's disease, another obesity, which is America's Medical Association classified as a disease in 2013. Side note, they seem to ignore it as uh, as a comorbidity factor for COVID. Yet in 2013, it was considered a disease. Hmm, politics. Get over yourself. You need to lose weight. Anyways, back to the article. Parkinson's disease. Dopamine enables neurons in your brain to communicate and control movement. In Parkinson's, one type of neuron steadily degenerates. It doesn't have a signal to send anyone, so your body makes less dopamine. The chemical imbalances causes physical symptoms. These include tremors, stiffness, slowness, spontaneous mood, etc. Obesity. Most of the time, if you take more calories in than you burn, you'll gain weight. So why can't obese people simply eat less and slim down? The answer isn't that simple. They may, some people, and this is me saying some people, stop saying it's everyone. They may face obstacles that they don't know. They could have problems with their natural reward system. This can affect the amount of food they eat before to feel satisfied. Imagining studies suggested that in people with this condition, the body may not release enough dopamine and others feel good hormones, serotonin. Dopamine can save lives. The chemical usually plays a secondary role in the body, and certain medical situations, it's literally lifesavers. Doctors use prescribed dopamine, low blood pressure, poor cardiac output, poor blood flow, some cases septic shock, and there's a whole list of other stuff. So you can see that dopamine is extremely important. 
and you know more specific to depression uh, is serotonin you know SSRIs or selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors so you know the two two things dopamine and uh, serotonin affect your mood dramatically imagine if we actually practice more cognitive medicine cognitive psychology did mris on people and uh check the state of their brain to see if the chemical balances are right and we'd be able to fix these properly rather than just taking random pills and hoping it works and giving the giant pharmaceutical companies money they don't actually need because we might only need a specific drug that's actually really cheap to get hmm um so obviously uh dopamine factors in on the reward centers this is why music can be an addiction uh it can feed addiction and it can also enhance your mood or dehens so like even if you're if you're depressed you listen to sad songs and it could actually be this is, this is me saying here that you're getting addicted to the dopamine rush of the song associated with it. And then what that happens is your brain misidentifies the addiction. It gets addicted to that feeling and it actually keeps you in the mood. So you keep yourself in a negative mood and you keep listening to music because the music is that keeps you in the negative mood is actually releasing dopamine and you're actually in a vicious cycle. And it's very common for people who are depressed or feeling anxious to listen to sad music. Now, while the studies in that article I was reading earlier do suggest that um you know it's actually not a negative the reality is it kind of can be because though from a cognitive psychology perspective a biological uh perspective it's causing an addiction to that music but that music is making you sad and keeping you in that sad state and so you're actually connecting the dots somehow and you become addicted to that sad state and what you're really seeking out is the dopamine release as caused by the music which causes an addiction and you see it's a vicious cycle now so if you're upset or depressed listening to sad music indefinitely or long term is actually causing you to stay sad and depressed in a roundabout way so you do have to be careful um you know angsty teens i I was one of them i'll talk about it you know i think in the next podcast the next blog post thing is you just choose to enhance your negative mood mood by doing it you know other people say oh you need a release but it's fine if it's for like a day but if you find yourself doing it indefinitely you may have an addiction issue with with the music relating to it and you're causing yourself to stay in an undesirable mood rather than getting out of it so music can dramatically affect based on a lot of research your mood your heart rate etc but the tools we use to heal ourselves can also create negative behavioral patterns if it's releasing dopamine or, or serotonin and um, we get addicted to it and then we keep reinforcing the mood with the, the dopamine, you're actually making things worse, right? So it's something to really consider. Now, I mentioned the Mozart effect. So let's look up what the Mozart effect is. Now, I'm just uh, pulling off of uh, Wikipedia. So the Mozart effect releases the, uh, refers to the theory that listening to music of Mozart may temporarily boost scores on one IQ test. Popular science versions of the theory make the claim that listening to music, uh, listening to Mozart makes you smarter, or that early childhood classical music has the beneficial effects on mental development. Um, so that's what the Mozart effect is essentially. Now, music has often been talked about enhancing the brain or intelligence, and it could. The thing is with science is often us humans are not very sophisticated. You see it going on now with COVID, but whatever, is that we focus, science in itself wants to isolate. And in isolating specific things, you don't actually consider confounding variables because you're not supposed to. But those confounding variables 
can make or break the theory. And the thing is, is that there's a lot of people who have high IQ or high intelligence, high EQ, grew up in homes that were able to provide them proper education from the start. So they had more stable upbringing financially, more stable upbringing. They have better education from the start. So it's really hard to pinpoint if music itself enhances uh, uh, intelligence or simply education at a lower age. And of course, those who are more educated due to just the history of education often are drawn to classical music. And if you're in the same spheres of educated social elites or wealthy where you learn piano and classical and this you're going to be drawn to it more because of social expectations so i found an interesting article on called the on the association between musical training intelligence and executive functions in adulthood now is this related to depression no but it can be now i'm going to read this article because just i think it's fascinating the music's relation to intelligence um but the thing is is intelligence can affect your depression i've read countless articles about intelligent people are more likely to have depression anxiety perhaps it's because they see more of the world and get anxious about it in in a broader sense from theory to practical or perhaps it's because Having a higher IQ is rarer than having a lower IQ. If you consider the bell curve model, if most people are in the 80% middle, if you're in the top 10%, you're going to struggle relating to people in that middle. And it's just just the way it is. So you have harder time interpersonally, can't relate to people as easily, and thus it causes depression. So I thought I would discuss, or depression anxiety, I thought I would discuss this article and just connecting some concepts of music and intelligence because though the theory theme of this post the post the theme of this episode is music and depression i think it's good to talk about music and its effects on the brain in general so let me read through this article again i will post the link in the actual uh episode notes i should note i'm not going to read it all of it and this is Frontiers in Psychology, originally posted on July 2019, July 30th. Antonio Crisculo Leonardo uh, Bonetti, sorry, Tempo Saracamo, Marina Kliuchko, and Elvira Bratko read this. So I'm not going to read all of it, but I'll read some of it. So. Converging evidence has demonstrated that musical training in association with improved perceptual and cognitive skills, including executive functions and general intelligence, particularly in childhood. In contrast, in adults, the relationship between cognitive performance and musicianship is less clear and seems to be modulated by a number of background factors, such as personality and socioeconomic status. Aiming to shed new light on this topic, we administered the Weschler's Adult Intelligence Scale 3 and the Weschler's Memory Scale 3 and the Stroop Test to 101 Finnish Healthy, 101 Finnish Healthy Adults. So this is obviously from Finland. That's why I can't pronounce the names. Uh, According to their musical expertise. Now, pause. Finland has a higher level of educated adults. They have a very high education level. A lot of the Nordic countries do. Um, so their education is amazing over there. So back to it. After being matched for socioeconomic status, personality traits, and other demographic variables, adult musicians exhibited higher cognitive performance than non-musicians in all mentioned measures. 
right? So they did account for socioeconomic status and educational exposure. So it's really important that they did that because they're acknowledging it as a factor. So moreover, linear regression models show significant positive relationships between executive functions, working memory, and attention, and the duration of musical practice, even after controlling for intelligence and background variables. Such personality traits. Such, hence, our study offers further support for the association between cognitive abilities and musical training, even in adulthood. Pause. Music is heavily linked to mathematical and logic, logical abilities, so it makes sense that if you train your brain in these, your brain is better at higher level reasoning. So, back to it. Highlights. Musicians show higher general intelligence, verbal intelligence, working memory, and attention skills than non-musicians. Amateurs scores in between. Significant positive correlations between years of musical playing and cognitive abilities support the hypothesis that long-term musical practice is associated with intelligent and executive functions. Pause. Imagine if I'd done music from a young age. Oh, oh well. Introduction. Musical training relies on executive functions. Musical training is a multisensory experience engaging in multiple cognitive functions and underlying neural networks. Indeed, reading, listening, understanding, and performing polyphonic music requires simultaneously processing of sounds and rhythms, higher-order perceptual processing, and fine sensory motor coordination. Munit et al. 2002. Long-term music, long musical training. Sorry, this is very... Uh, academic, so it's going to be a little tough for me to read. Long-term musical training engages and trains all the functions on a daily basis, and as a result, musicians seem to improve not only musical-related ability, but also domain general skills, so stuff kind of those brain areas use that are similar. Hence, musicians show increased auditory perception and production abilities, such as enhanced capacity to detect devi deviations in complex regularities and tone patterns whole bunch of citations there as well as fine motor movement pause what that could translate to is you have better social skills hypothetically is, is if you're not on the spectrum of uh, autism because you can read you can hear better the changes in tones of people's voices so you can read uh emotions better something i suck at maybe i should have learned music better anyways continuing besides improving listening and sensory motor abilities closely linked to the musical practices citation i'm gonna i'm not gonna read the citations they're in the link i'll give it to you there is also evidence in favor of the far transfer effect to non-musical functions in literature far transfer effect relates to the influence of musical training on general uh, mathematical and non-verbal abilities uh, among these working memory refers to the ability to retrieve monitor analyze integrate chunk and recall within a short time span both auditory and non-auditory information uh, I'm sorry, I'm just skipping through a lot of the, the citations. For reviews, see these following people. In music, processing, uh, working memory integrates sounds, offense, recollects information from a memory system, links sounds to meaning and to memories, and supports the generation of emotional reactions. Hence emotional stability, right? Along with cognitive flexibility, response inhibition, and interference control, uh, working memory is considered one of the fundamental executive functions. Higher levels for humans makes us smarter than other animals. Execu executive functions designate a set of abilities related to updating and manipulating relevant information, inhibiting uh, automatic responses, shifting attention and mental tasks, planning, reasoning, and decision-making. Improvements in executive functions and cognitive flexibility by musical training have been observed in Finnish school-age children and these improvements positively correlated to enhanced neural sound discrimination. Now, the school music training when I was growing up sucked. 
you do band. And the one teacher that did guitar taught guitar. So I had to learn trumpet. And uh, I hated it because my sister learned trumpet. So I had to learn trumpet because they're really expensive. Anyways, figure out what musical instrument your child likes and get them to learn that. Personally, I'm a fan of violin and uh, piano, but, you know, people hate the violin. Anyways, back to this article. Well, I should say people hate the violin of people learning because it sounds horrible. But if you're amazing at it, oh, it sounds beautiful. Anyways, effects of musical training on general intelligence. Previous evidence suggests that long-term engagement in musical activities modulates not only executive function, but also general intelligence. Uh, in psychological science, uh, it has been defined as several ways as assessed using a variety of behavioral tests. Described it as, uh, or uh, Gottfriedson described it as a very general mental capability, capability that involves the ability to reason, plan, solve problems, think abstractly, comprehend complex ideas, learn quickly, and form experiences. Uh, general intelligence seems to rely on similar neurological substrates of working memory comprising a network of prefrontal and subcortical regions along with the interior cingulate uh, parietal and premotor regions. For similarities at both functions and anatomical levels, uh, Salthouse and Pink suggested that uh, working memory is closely related to general. Uh, sorry, they're using abbreviations here. General intelligence. Moreover, the benefits of transfer effects of music training extends to the domain of general intelligence and its quantitative measures, namely intelligence quotient (IQ). For example, musically trained children show high IQ as compared to non-trained children. Now, I'll put a pause on that. A lot of people don't like IQ. Bottom line, you can you there is a noticeable difference in intelligence level. You've everyone should have met someone way smarter than them, and everyone should have met someone way not smarter than them. It's just a reality. The IQ test is not a perfect measure for intelligence, but it's a baseline. If you're upset that you don't score as high as you want to, it's called ego. Okay? The more intelligent people on this planet may be more capable of fixing things, but they may also have worse social skills because, as I mentioned, intelligent people often struggle to fit in with the majority and we are social creatures and therefore it causes not always good decisions with regards to others. They make purely, purely data-driven decisions, which I am against, and they screw over the majority of people. But see, IQ, high IQ and music on high IQ tend to generally have higher rates of anxiety. This is not in this article. I'm just sort of connecting some dots here. So let's go back to this article. Nature or Nurture. Finding in favor of the link between musical training and cognitive functions led to the no notorious debate of nature versus nurture. Are the observed differences in cognitive abilities only associated with pre-existing neurocognitive differences which predispose people to engage in musical activities, or is the cognitive training promoted by musical activities able to influence cognitive abilities nurture? On the side of numerous experimental studies have shown the link between musical training and cognitive development. For example, in, in Schellenberg 2004, IQ of a sample of 144 six-year-old children were assessed before and after one year of music or drama classes by Weschler Intelligence Scale for children third edition. The authors demonstrated that despite no difference in the pretest for the WISC scores, there were greater improvements in WISC scores for children of musical groups as compared to the control groups, along with improvements in some of its subscales, such as verbal com comprehension and perceptual organization indices. 
Similarly, in Shelburg 2011, obviously this individual does a lot of research on this, 106 children aged 9 to 12, half musically trained and half musically not, so a control group, were tested with the Weschler abbreviated scale of intelligence. Trained children showed higher IQ scores than their untrained counterpart. Lastly, beyond IQ assessed with psychological tests, music training in childhood is associated with positive academic achievement and improvement for language-related ability. Pause. So you can also think that IQ tests are designed by people who are in the academic circles and therefore they're looking to measure certain things. That is a fair criticism of IQ tests, but they're still a good measure of a baseline of general intelligence uh, and education. So people who are not educated tend to not like it, and people who support these people tend to not like it. Uh, so, continuing. Together, these findings highlight and associate between musical training and general cognitive ability in childhood. However, when taking in consideration background variables other than musical training, some authors have shown the pre-existing differences in cognitive abilities, which means um, you're born with what you got, and some people have different skill sets from the get-go. So, continuing, together with the differences in children and their parents, personality traits may contribute in the choice of engaging in musical training and in the duration of such training. What that means is, what's your parents' situation like? What's your home life like? If you have a garbage one, training is going to be absent. Therefore, if you have a good home life, you're more likely to be exposed to musical and educational training. I don't have kids yet. I plan on teaching them and learning with them because I don't have it. So I'm going to use that as an opportunity to learn for myself, both several languages, math that I'm missing, and language. I'm not motivated now with a child. I will be. So yay. Um, I came up with a good home, just to put a uh, point, but my parents were not very engaged in the actual learning of what I was learning. So anyways. Ooh, where was I? Uh, probably. In turn, this may ultimately account for differences in cognitive performances in adulthood. Furthermore, uh, Bonetta and Costa, 2017, showed association between fluid intelligence and music task chain children aged 4 to 6 years old with no previous musical training, suggesting a possible innate connection between some musical skills and intelligence that could potentially lead to higher probably engaging in musical studies for children with higher IQ. So again, I really think it, there is definitely a measurable uh, effect on your brain and intelligent music, but it may actually have to do a lot of it to do with your educational upbringing and home situation. But the one thing for sure is it seems like music will, in fact, train your brain how to see patterns, logic, reason, and mathematical capabilities because it cause becomes sort of a subconscious normality. And then it goes into their current study, exactly what they're looking into in the tests. I won't bore you with that because it's already quite dense, etc. Uh, it's quite long. Um, but I'll go to the results. So let's take a look. Results. Musician, amateurs, and non-musicians. As compared to amateurs, musicians had spent more years and hours practicing an instrument. Musical background information on amateurs and musical is provided in their table, along with mean uh, abbreviation for something. Despite the absence of differences in background variables, so they tried to link everyone up to similar backgrounds, home life, etc. Uh, musicians perform better in all cognitive tests as compared to the other groups as shown in their graphs, etc. It goes through some mathematical, uh, statistical stuff. Well, basically that means in the if all things are absolutely equal, there is a strong correlation to music and higher intelligence. Um, so it goes through some other stuff. Um, I won't read through most of the rest of the stuff, but I, this is really interesting, well-informed, well-done study, uh, in-depth, lots of citations. This is what good studies look like.
So the link is in in the actual blog post. Uh, you can you can follow it up. But I think at this point you should see that music can affect your mood through dopamine and potentially serotonin. It can affect uh, your mental state, positive or negative. It can affect your intelligence, positive or negative. Of course, the type of music you affect. There was studies done. I'm, just, I'm doing this off the top of my head that. Mozart and classical music were the number one, uh, then modern rock like Led Zeppelin, etc. And then it just sort of went down for that. So is it that the intelligent level chooses the music or the socioeconomic environment chooses the music? It's hard to say. But one thing's for sure, it seems that all things equal, uh, classical music and more mathematically based music that uh, is rhythmic and teaches you scales and all that sort of stuff probably has a higher level of ability to affect your intelligence. So a little bit back to the post now. So this is post two and where I talk about the decision of how music affected uh, my decision to go to Israel and a little bit about that. Music, a tool to change mood, a personal history, part two. It's actually because of Matis Yahu and his music that helped convince me at the right time to drop everything, move to Israel and join the IDF, specifically two songs. Jerusalem and Warrior, which also happened to be two of his earlier songs. But with all music, words alone cannot do them justice, so here are the songs, assuming they don't get pulled. Click on video. At one point, I considered getting the lyrics, Jerusalem, if I forget you, let my right hand forget what it's supposed to do, tattooed on me, in Hebrew, as it is a biblical verse. I'm glad the tattoo artist convinced me out of it, as it was a bit too religious for my liking now. Instead, I got the Hebrew word for life tattooed on me to symbolize that I chose life, which I put in the center of my black and white Star of David. It not only expressed my identity, as I am a proud Jew, even if I have great disdain for religion, but also that the universe demands unity of everything, male and female, right and wrong, and good and evil, tattooed on me in Hebrew as it is a biblical verse. However, the second verse of Jerusalem in particular spoke to me, which goes the following. Rebuild the temple and the crown of glory, years gone by, about sixty. Burn in the oven in the century, and the gas tried to choke, but it couldn't choke me. I will not lie down, I will not fall asleep. They come overseas, yes, they're trying to be free. Erase the demons out of our memory, change your name and your identity. Afraid of the truth and our dark history, why is every... What body always chasing we? Cut off the roots of your family tree. Don't you know that's not the way to be? In reference to the Holocaust and how history has attempted to destroy the Jews as a people, uproot us and destroy our lineage, did I mention I am a proud Jew? I decided to accept my identity as a Jew, not because I care about the Torah, not because I am religious, not because I like the holidays, but because of history. In the end, it does not matter what I think, whether I accept myself as a cultural Jew, a religious Jew, or a genetic Jew. Those around me will always see me as a Jew. Hitler determined that if you had two grandparents that were Jewish, even if you weren't a practicing Jew, you would be considered a Jew, and thus subject to the atrocities that were committed under his orders. This was even used in the construction of Israel's right-to-return laws. Despite claims that there is no anti-Semitism in the world, it is false narrative. Even when there are mass protests, 
like the misguided Love Trumps hate rallies, many of those who claim to operate in the name of love still hate Jews. For anti-Semitism is real and as strong as ever. As such, no matter what I think, those who would hate Jews will always see me as one, no matter what I think. This song, as well as the hate for of others irony, made me realize I must accept who I am and be proud of my heritage, even if I don't plan to continue the Jewish practices. This song helps me solidify who I am as a person. It helped me know who I am and accept it. It helped me understand the meaning of the term never again when referring to the Jewish people, in particular with the second verse, and come 2008-2009 when I decided to move to Israel and join the IDF, this was one of the reasons I convinced myself to go. The second of Matas Yahoo's two songs that helped me decide to go to Israel was Warrior. Click on video. With this song, the line in the chorus, You're a warrior fighting for your soul, spoke to me. For I am a warrior fighting for my soul, lost and unhappy, looking for purpose. For I am the lion, the wolf, and the fox, and I will fight for me because no one else will. Though I add the animal analogy as I write this, the three animals which I think embodied Utikiam, the rest was true at the time. I decided, yes, I am a warrior. I don't care if others look down at me, berate me, hate me, or deny my talents and potential. I will do it for me. I even thought of my grandfather, who was a proud veteran of the Canadian forces and proud supporter of Israel. Outside of my Israeli cousins, I would be the only of his children or grandchildren in North America closer to him that would continue the military tradition. I know he would have been proud of me, though unfortunately he passed before my service. The memory of him and his dedication along with the song and what it means to be a warrior further pushed my decision to join the military. Okay, so that's sort of like the pre pre uh or early army stuff pre army and then i sort of the third post skips right into like near the later of the army thing but i will say something about music and performance going back to him people like the music they like when they train and we used to music in our fitness classes uh you know and uh, to hype us up and now like peloton they did get sued for copyright infringement but they use it to enhance the mood and beat and get people going and then now imagine being in the military you got to go 40 kilometers plus in in a day or a night or a week or whatever. I had some weeks where we went 150, 200 kilometers throughout the entire week with all our gear on foot. And our, I was in Trivati, so at the time the uh, beret march was 40 kilometers. You do that in, from sundown to sunrise, basically. You have to do it in absolute silence other than footstop and the demons of your own thought. So we often use music to uh, escape the pain of the exercise or the pain. So imagine having to go all night, tired and hungry and sweaty with nothing but silence. And it's actually a tool that I use in Krav Maga sometimes. I don't always put music on. A lot of times it's quiet and I want people to focus on the training while thinking about their head because, you know, what's going on in your head. If you don't like being alone with your own thoughts, you have to work on that. Um, we often use music to mask uh, our thoughts going through when we're doing something difficult makes sense so i don't i want to address something i just mentioned in uh in, in that article the law of return this is from wikipedia 
The law of return, uh, section one of the law of return, declares every Jew has the right to come to this country as an ole, an immigrant. In the right of uh, the law of return, the state of Israel gives the effect to the Zionist movement credo, which is called for the establishment of Israel, the Jewish state, blah, blah, blah. The right of 1970, the right of entry and settlement was extended to people with Jewish grandparents and a person who was na- married to a Jew, basically because of the way Hitler was. So there's m- more to that, and people make it controversial. They don't need to make it controversial or grow up. But just I wanted to explain what that actually was. Uh, right, and of course, uh, in that I talk about Matis Yahu's song about relating to Jewish history and the falls of the temple and it relates to the Holocaust and about identity. So in this song, it, I related to my Jewish identity. So this thing, who are you? What are you? Who am I? Um, is a common problem, especially if you grow up in a multicultural place. You know, I grew up in, I'm in Vancouver, Metro Vancouver. There's not that many Jews. Strong Jewish identity is... Heavily dependent on did you go to Jewish day school and et cetera. Were you heavy in the Jewish community as opposed to a place like Toronto or New York where it's very easy to have a, a big Jewish identity. Um, in Metro Vancouver, for example, in, there's a lot of Asians. And often you get Asian kids of a variety of Asian backgrounds who grew up here are very, quote, whitewashed, but their parents are first generation, like very ethnically what they were and there's a disconnect because the children want to fit in with their parents and they want to fit in with society and i noticed a trend about you know identity is for mental health is a lot of my friends growing up struggled who am i do i be more white or western or do i go more culturally asian and people often pick they just go full-on ham westernized or full-on ham asian and it's very difficult to play that straddle that in between. So this, these songs I'm mentioning, you know, they gave me a lot to think about when I was younger uh, and my mental health um, and my identity. Right nowadays, I'm a Jew, and if it comes up in topic, I talk about it. But I, I identify myself as me. I don't identify myself as the group. Just like with depression, a lot of people make the mistake with depression and anxiety where they identify their persona with the disease or uh, ailment. And it's something that I was taught in school not to do. And yet I see people with anxiety and depression and PTSD running around saying, I have PTSD, I have anxiety, I have depression. And what that actually does is you're identifying your entire persona, the story you're telling yourself is that thing. And instead of being, I am John, you say, I am John with depression. And you reinforce that, right? I'm not going to get too much into the power of words because a lot of that I think is a lot of silliness. But if you're using mood to enhance your depressed state and you're telling people, you're introducing people as I'm John, I have depression. I've met people like this. They always talk about their depression, always talking about their PTSD, always talking about their anxiety. They constantly uh, talk about it as, as, as their thing. Acknowledge it, grow, learn to, learn to go. And if you're using your music to enhance these things, you're not growing. It's super important to know your identity, whether it be cultural or mentally. But if you're using the music to enhance a negative view of yourself and causing your identity to be something you're not, or something you don't want to be, rather, it, it's very problematic, right? If you have depression, okay, I had depression. Largely, I don't anymore. I, I have COVID spiked it up a couple times in the day just when 
basically fuck you governments for your delusional approach to everything anyways um you need to be careful how you use your tools to you uh deal with your mental state so if you feel you're depressing you should have songs that you know lift you out of it it's much more beneficial because you can get into a better mental state and for the love of god don't identify yourself with a negative thing whether it be depression anxiety ptsd and it is negative if it keeps making your worldview negative and you're always depressed and anxious that is negative for you having it is not inherently a negative thing because life is what it is but fixating and linking to that so if you're using music negatively to create that addictive cycle of the mood correlated with the the music which release dopamine or serotonin you're not doing it right right and if you're struggling with your identity you know in this case i use the music of matisau heavily jewish focus to have stronger identity but i also listen to music of all sorts of stuff to be honest i can't stand mizrahi music which is sort of the middle eastern israeli music more arab influenced if you will it just sounds like uh it's like whiny boy bands and high-pitched music i just drove me nuts i didn't find it enjoyable at all but a lot of israelis love it so how do you use music to enhance your mood um so i'm going to read an article i found from hopkins medicine and if you didn't know james the the hopkins uh johns hopkins james johns hopkins university is one of the premier uh medical hospitals in uh, america if not the world and they do a lot of awesome studies and a variety of things and and they tend to still drive medical research uh home really well uh well as a lot of other places are are not so progressive so how this is an article on keep your brain young with music from the johns hopkins medical school and this is a way to use uh, an example of how to use Music as a positive thing for your brain rather than a negative thing keeping vicious cycles. And by the way, this one's much shorter. So keep your brain young with music. If you want to firm up your body, head to the gym. If you want to exercise your brain, listen to music. There are a few things that stimulate your brain like what music does, says one Johns Hopkins uh, otolaryngologist. If you want to keep your brain engaged throughout the aging process excuse me listening to or playing music is a great tool it provides a total brain workout research has shown that listening to music can reduce anxiety blood pressure and pain as well as improve sleep quality mood mental alertness and memory pause again if you use it right but again it can it can create in some people a vicious addictive cycle where they become the identify themselves with the disorder and they use the dopamine release that is caused by sad music to maintain it and that creates an addiction associated with the brain state and it, it becomes very difficult even if your blood pressure is lower anyways the brain music connection experts are trying to understand how our brains can hear music and play music a stereo system puts out vibrations that travel through the air and somehow get inside the ear canal these vibrations tickle the eardrum and trans are transmitted into an electrical signal that travels through the auditory nerve to the brain stem where it is reassembled into something we perceive as music. John Hopkins researchers have dozens of jazz performers and rappers improve improvise music while lying down inside of an fMRI. That's hard to do, man. <laughs> Gotta stay still in those things. Uh, machine to watch and see which areas of the brains light off. See, they can do it if they want to. Uh, Quote, music is a structural, mathematical, and architectural. It's based on a relationship between one note to the next. You may not be aware of it, but your brain has to do a lot of computing to make sense of it. 
notes quote, uh, notes one otolaryngologist. Everyday brain boost for your music. The power of music isn't just limited to interesting research. Try these methods of bringing more music and brain benefits into your life. Jumpstart your creativity. Listen to what your kids or grandkids listen to. Experts suggest often we continue to listen to the same songs or genre of music that we did during our teens and 20s, and we generally avoid hearing anything that's not from that era. New music challenges the brain in a way that old music doesn't. It might not feel pleasurable at first, but unfamiliarity forces your brain to struggle to understand these things. I listen to pop songs sometimes because they're catchy, whatever. But they're using the four chord method to get you addicted. Shenanigans. Look up four chords. It's a hilarious song. Anyways, recall memory from a long ago. Reach a for a familiar music, especially if it stems from the same time period you were trying to recall. Listen to the Beatles. You might bring back your first moment. You laid eyes on your spouse if you're old enough, of course, for instance. So use music to remember stuff. This is actually, and this is off, off this thing. You could use music in therapy if you're trying to figure out identify a specific traumatic event that's been buried or whatever what music did you listen to at that age you can start bringing up emotional states and sometimes people listen to songs and it brings up intense emotional they don't even know why because they don't realize it's connecting to the memories of that time so this is an example of using music for therapeutic use um bringing up memories of course if you do it on your own it may just make you depressed and sad and you don't even know why so it's a useful tool for for reliving areas in your life and uh, working through emotional trauma and stuff. So back to it. Listen to your body. Pay attention to how you react to different forms of music and pick up the kind that works for you. What helps for one person uh, concentrate might be distracting to someone else. I'd, uh, and, and what helps one on one may put another. For me to do work, I need to put on uh, music with nonverbal. I tend to put on like side trance or trance music. It's very rhythmic and upbeat and happy and no music. I find words distract me heavily, right? So that's just an interesting uh, thing on uh, positive ways you can enhance your brain and make your brain uh, work for you properly. Um, so there is that. Now let's move to uh, the third of the post. And I just want to say about this post, I was quite pleased with the graphic I did there. It's a satellite overlay of Nabulus, uh, one of the three large uh, Palestinian cities. We were on a hilltop on the other side, and I overimposed a brain of a depressed person sitting there struggling. And where the brain is, is allegedly where the, the settlement we were at. So I thought it was very clever um, for artistic senses, but it definitely expresses how I felt at that time for sure so have a listen to part three of the actual blog series that inspired this series music a tool to change mood a personal history part three fast forward to the middle to latter part of my service stationed in nebulous or shechem on a mountaintop next to a Jewish settlement overlooking numerous Arab villages. It was a particular stressful time with little sleep, constant guard duty, pointless riot control that was like a stupid game of cat and mouse. At the same time, my best friend at the time and spotter had been selected to go to sergeant school, which means he would be gone. At the time, I didn't realize how having him there was helping me keep my sanity. 
but apparently my commanders noticed a drastic change in my behavior after that. Outside of the army, almost all of the people whom I had moved to Israel with had either moved off to kibbutz where I was living, or people I disliked, or vice versa. Nothing had gone to plan, and I felt isolated and alone, with no support. I was spiraling into a deep depression, and I didn't even know it at the time. Thankfully, I rediscovered the album Kaleidoscope by Tiesto, which had been released a little over a year previously. Though controversial from its f his fans as it branched away from his traditional style, it might have literally saved my life. Kaleidoscope by Tiesto. I found myself, when not on guard duty, putting my headphones in and putting on one or two songs on repeat. I could see pacing, be see pacing around our room or on the base listening to it on repeat on what could probably look like a zombie with earphones. This time the album was the only thing that brought me any joy. One song often found itself on repeat, Here on This Earth, featuring the Carey Brothers. To quote, And the sun has fallen, and the backbeats telling truth that you want to hear, and you want to hear again, and the closer that you get with the force of all the weight, and it's clear, do you want to feel her, want to feel her, want to feel her, for as long as you are here, here on this earth, I feel alive. For as long as you are here, here on this earth, I feel alive. And you take your time because we've got all night. Saturdays are nothing. We can do what we want. I'm a sucker for your game. It's the way you tease and it's so unreal. When we touch the ceiling. For as long as you are here, here on this earth, I feel alive. For as long as you are here, here on this earth, I feel alive. Make it so it shakes your heart, nice and slow, but can you let it go? And you feel life fall away, and you have no fear, and you let it go, just let it go. And you feel life fall away, and you have no fear, can you let it go, let it go? For as long as you are here, here on this earth, I feel alive, feel alive, feel alive, feel alive. Though the song talks about love, and a person existing, giving the person meaning, for me it was the course that helped me. For as long as you are here, here on this earth, I feel alive. For me, I put myself in place of the lover and protagonist, and as long as I was here on this earth, I felt alive. Just like the warrior, I had imagined myself before coming, I felt alive, and I was fighting for myself emotionally, though at the time I didn't know it. It wasn't until much later, after I returned from Israel and had a manic depressive episode, that I even knew I had depression. But this song grounded me at what would be one of the darker times in my service. Music, a powerful tool. Intuition says so, science says so. So how are you going to use it? Early in my life, I used it to enhance my mood negatively. Later, I used it to motivate and drive me forward. Then I used it to stay alive and feel alive. The trick is not just finding music because it is trendy, but finding music that not only speaks to you personally, but music that can be used positively to enhance your mood. Don't listen to music to enhance dark moods, for this will only make you feel worse. Find music that inspires and motivates you and keeps you feeling alive. Use it as a tool to help you with your mental challenges so that you can once walk again in peace. 
Conclusion note. When I chose the topic to write about, I had an entirely different idea in my head of what the final product would look like. But then I started writing. I began to listen to the songs I discussed, some of which I have not listed, listened to for a long time. Not surprisingly to me, though slightly unexpected and certainly surprising to anyone who thinks they know me, those, these songs bring back relatively strong emotions as I really have these times in my life. This just shows you the power of music and its effect it has on emotion. Despite what people think, uh, even about myself, the robot is only human and still subject to the same general biological rules as everyone else. I thought, I am, am I a warrior at heart and accept my humanity, even if I think emotions cloud judgment far too often for far too many people. So if you have a hard time with emotional control, Find the tools and use them positively. Music is just one of the few tools that can help. Okay, so that kind of gives you a better idea of the mindset that I had in the army at that time. I felt abandoned. I felt alone, away from anyone, no support. Uh, and at the time in the IDF, I don't know what it's like now, but mental health really wasn't the thing they considered. Um, they have a sort of ranking called, uh, oh, it's like a 32 or something. I could, maybe that number is wrong. Well, they basically stamp your thing saying you got this mental health ranking and you basically are discharged from the army. And at the time, I talked to the uh, psychologist whose English was terrible, which made it very hard for me. But he basically said he's not going to give me that to get out of the army at the time because um, it ruins your potential prospects for working and, and living in Israel as far as what you can do. It affects you indefinitely. They, they really reserve it for people who have like a psychotic break or or uh, all of a sudden they develop, say, schizophrenia or some serious mental ailment that you're not functional. And he's like, listen, you're obviously not happy and you're obviously depressed, but I'm not going to do that to you because you are, you're functional, right? You're fine uh, as far as an individual. You're smart, you're intelligent, right? And they create a lot of problems, uh, Getting out of the army was a very complicated thing for me, which I'm not going to talk about on this one. One day, perhaps. But you can see it sort of created a state of not happiness. And uh, the two songs there, uh, Tiesto, a lot of people hated that album. I loved that album. Obviously, it helped me a lot because it made me feel like I had reasons to live. Uh, at the time... And, you know, imagine that you're walking around with a gun all day long, every day. And unfortunately, in the IDF, in many armies, people do commit suicide all the time. But, you know, this, this song, I Feel Alive, made me really want to stay alive because it gave me a reason to live. So I was using, in this case, music as a positive thing to reinforce positive feelings so that I could feel better and, and self-medicate. Now, I self-medicate through music, I mean. Now, I'll talk about when I came back. A lot. Some of the people I thought were my friends, this is what I really realized, because I was having a very hard time adjusting. I mean, really. And it basically, you know, I fully admit my behavior may not have been the best, but there was basically zero attempt by people to help me. Like, none. And I mean, none. They basically are like, nah, this person's crazy. I don't want to deal with them. And they just stopped. You know, you can realize if you're socially aware, they just stopped contacting me, stopped talking to me, stopped messaging me. It was, like, pretty clear. So I'm like, whatever. You know, it is what it is. I understand you didn't like my behavior, but at the same time, it's like you're not very good friends if you 
don't want to try to help me because a lot of them I've been gone for so long a lot of them just moved on without me and didn't really care to have me in their life it's very unfortunate and then you know I actually what happened is I met a girl and this is where I I had I didn't realize at the time I was actually in a manic state and a manic state is uh where you're really elated high dopamine serotonin really happy just super happy all the time and then it didn't work out and I had an immediate crash and I've talked about this before where I lost 30 or 40 pounds in two weeks I I managed to go to work and I had the shakes because my body and nervous system is so messed up and I would just come home and lie on the couch here's the thing nobody give a shit nobody and it took me and me myself to figure out that something was wrong so this is why when I talk to people about mental health it's tough for me because my experience is very different in my experience, I don't have a strong social support network for that kind of stuff. Uh, even to this day, people don't usually come looking to comfort me in any way. And I, it's been most of my life. I have to do things on my own emotionally. And I got off the couch on my own, went to the doctor, and started a path towards learning learning what happened. It started with SSRIs, you know, of course, my degree in psychology to give me contextual help. Uh, I did some group therapy provided by the city, but it was crap because they're a hacky therapist. And some of those people were just broke. I mean, really broken. And it just was not a good place. So I stopped doing therapy at the time. I found therapists to be mediocre at best for me because I've never had one that is intelligent enough and, 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 and has enough general knowledge to be helpful for me. Of course, the best ones in the world, uh, like Esther Perel, I'm not going to be able to get access to. So. Uh, listen to Esther Pearl stuff, especially for relationship and other things, if you want. So, you know, that was me and my journey f- was myself and I'm still working on it. I- I'm at the point where for me personally, internally, I think very positively of myself and I try not to be too overly. But I will say this. Someone recently said to me something about why are you so confident? I have no explanation for it. I was confident when I was young. People just see it as arrogant. I'm confident now. And people see it as arrogant. And that is hard to deal with when you have a history of depression. And I never thought about that, you know, that perspective. Often the th- shit people project on us is actually a, a state of their own insecurities and ego. And, and if you're a confident person, here's the thing. People actually accuse you of doing that all the time, but you're like, no, I'm just confident and it's actually their insecurities throwing up. Not all the time, but a lot of the time. And we play this battle of, of people who have depression and anxiety and social issues and, 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 and issues and we're all throwing our shit around on everyone and no one really knows what the hell is going on. But one thing I can say for sure is if you can have a strong internal dialogue with yourself, and I mean, you don't have negative self-talk. You generally like yourself. You're happy internally. You're comfortable with yourself by yourself it's a lot easier to deal with the nonsense that people throw. Now, I'm not inherently a social person, so I do tend to stick to myself and, of course, my partner, uh, who at this point is my best friend in, in all reality. Who knows if we don't kill each other in the future because um, we both have history of mental health. I'm not going to talk about theirs because they don't want me to publicly. I don't think that's fair, so I will not, other than it is I have learned a lot from living with a person with issues and I don't have a problem saying the word issues because it is. It's issues. Because um, it's faced me to address my own internal things in a way that I've never had to deal with before. Now, during this time, I actually don't listen to a lot of music. As I said earlier, I listen to podcasts because I want to expand my intellectual capacity. So I'm going to link 
auditory stuff with music is that as someone who felt alone and nobody got me, it's a common feeling we have nowadays. Through podcasts, I now had access to some of the smartest people in the world that I felt no longer alone and isolated because some of the ideas I have are no longer my own. It's like, oh, there are other people out there who have my ideas. I'm not crazy. This is partially why we're drawn to people who share similar beliefs and ideas. You feel connected and part of something. You have to be careful, though, in doing that, that you get a perspective. What does the other side feel? Now, I know right now we're in a culture war. There's all, I really despise a lot of stuff that uh, people on the left are saying. Even from a scientific perspective, it's a bunch of nonsense. It's not very well thought out. And it's going down the rural road of Hitlerian authoritarian idea control. Um, but I don't delete people off my Facebook because they have differing opinions. As, mu- as strong as emotional reaction, some of the stuff they say elicits, I want to see what they have to say. One, because I can, s- I, I, I can see what's happening on the other side, so I'm not blindsided if they do something insane. But also because I really want to give myself perspective. A lot of people don't do that. So I'm just sort of quitting... Uh, ideas and podcasting to music right um definitely though when i came back back to the music theme i used music to enhance or uh, my mood i i don't really recall during my recovery stage what i was listening to but it it wasn't just podcast it was probably music i probably listened to a lot of edm and a lot of uh, uh electronic music i like the lack of words you know nowadays i find myself going back to stuff you know the memory aspect of music i use uh when i'm feeling a certain or recalling i'll i'll listen to the music associated with the time to to recall the memory just as the research suggests us to do or have a uh, relive a certain emotion right so it's certainly interesting now i would like to point out that i came back from the army and i did not have ptsd yet people accused people of it just because someone's in the military don't automatically assume ptsd my issues were different and by the way my depression doesn't come from the military it comes from a family history and years of social ostracization is not fitting in and not finding my in-group. Instead, I just isolated myself and created my own group, uh, Kim, for example. Although a lot of people, a lot of my students hate the shit I say. They don't like the fact that I talk about stuff and they just want to learn to punch and kick. But again, my approach to education is something bigger. I want you to be able to defend yourself mentally, physically, ideologically, not just physically because in this world it's not always just physical anymore and i think it's rudimentary and simple-minded to think it's only about punching and kicking though that is one of the hardest aspects you'll ever have to do now regarding music and depression i'm going to read another article or aspects of it because again this one is quite dense about music and depression so this one effects of music on depression levels and uh, physiological responses community-based older adults so this is this one ties real uh, heavily into um, memory and alzheimer's and uh, elderly people and this one was actually done uh, in china i believe hong kong so it's good to get some stuff that is looking at different ethnic groups because often studies are only done with university students of a particular type especially in western ones much as I dislike the Chinese government, uh, it's good to read research from their universities sometimes. Something like this is not going to be interfered with from the government, I imagine. So here is some stuff from that, this, this, uh, this piece. So abstract. 
many people over the age of 65 do not regard depression as treatable mental disorder and find it particularly to express themselves verbally. Listening to music can facilitate the nonverbal expression of emotions and allow people's inner feelings to be expressed without being threatened. The aim of the study was to determine the effect of music on depression levels of elderly people. A randomized controlled study was conducted with 47 elderly people. Just to be honest, I think that's a small sample group. Really, studies should start with 100 and work their way up, but budgetary, etc. Anyway, who completed the study after being recruited in Hong Kong, blood pressure, heart rate, respiratory rate, and depression level variables were collected. In the music group, there were statistically significant dec decreases in depression scores. The implication is that nurses may utilize music as an effective nursing intervention for patients with depression symptoms in a community setting. Pause on that. If you were in an old folks home during COVID, music could have been an amazing way to fix the isolation, extreme isolation that they were certainly facing. Did you? Is a good question. Back to it. Introduction. Studies have shown that as many as 24% of older adults in the USA and 35% in China report depressive symptoms. Wilson et al. Wu et al. It's really good of them, by the way, to cite multiple sources from in their country and out of their country. In a comparative study of middle-aged, 65 or below, and old-aged, 65 and above group, the prognosis of relapses of recurrences was found to be much more frequent among older patients. This begs the question of whether continued treatment for depression in older adults is effective. A study indicates that elderly people are at risk of inferior treatment response and poor antidepressant tolerability. This results in constants consistent with another study which revealed that many older adults were more physically unhealthy and had activities limited by depression. Pause. That's a big one. Older people tend to be unhealthy. So if they don't have good healthy lifestyles and good social networks, they will be mentally impaired and physically impaired. If you don't use it, you lose it. Look at old people who exercise their whole lives, never stop. They look great, feel great. Versus if you go into elder phones where they just sort of sit there and stare at nothing all day. They, they, they are on doorsteps. Okay, continuing. Depression in the elderly. Depression can be an early indicator of the presence of one of the aforementioned medical conditions in the reference study. Patients with Alzheimer's disease suffer a progressive decline with their stress threshold. Gerder 97 proposed a mid-range theory incorporating these elements to discussion to use individualized musics to alleviate agitation. The theory postulates that music would stimulate memory or remote events and elicit of memories associated with positive feelings would have a soothing effect and alleviate or decrease agitated behaviors. Within the Chinese community, failure to report depression mood to one's physician as a symptom is relatively common. Pause. Uh, with a partner who's Chinese and I grew up around this, it is not common to discuss emotions openly in, in, in this, particularly in the Chinese culture. It's, it's something that I hope they can work on as a culture, but it, it's still something in progress. Uh, continuing, the illness believes of Chinese patients who are depressed in one study reflected a focus on their physical symptoms and seldom highlighted their depression as the chief concern, Lai 99. In fact, Many patients with depressions do not regard it as a treatable mental disorder. Con, uh, con, I have not seen this word. Concomitantly, or it's just difficult. Another belief of patients, as suggested by Cheng 1989, is the health professionals are more interested in their physiological state, physical state than the psychological symptom. Pause. Doctors, you suck. Okay, I'm going to say this. Grow up. 
learn more, expand your knowledge to nutrition, health and wellness and mental health. Most of the doctors I go to here are garbage and give bad advice in such a linear fashion. I can't stress this enough. Doctors need to be better. And if you can't, the robots, I'll gladly let them take over. Anyways, for medical diagnosis. Thus, continuing, thus the older adults with depression may allow their depressive symptoms to go untreated. Cold something in reference. The prevalence of depression symptoms among elderly Chinese was estimated at 35% in a local study. Older age Chinese with depression suffer from both emotional and somatic disturbances, but are more likely to focus on their physical problems and believe that their emotional problems result from their physical disturbances. Pause. That's not true. It's, it's interconnected. Their physical state affects mental and mental affects physical. I can say from personal anecdotal and just general evidence. And continuing. A poor quality of life. In addition, they find it difficult to express themselves verbally. Music as a vehicle of feeling can facilitate nonverbal expression of emotion, and music can reach people's inner feelings without being threatened and can be a tool for emotional catharsis. Therefore, the study focused on the effects of listening to music on depression in the elderly. Pause. It's quite dense, so be prepared. Continuing, use of music intervention in healthcare. The prevalence use of music activity in various settings is well documented in the literature. Existing research on the use of music activity in healthcare settings has ranged from acute inpatient care, including surgical, uh, coronary care, there's a whole bunch of citations, critical care and oncology settings, to outpatient care, including nursing home settings for agitated residents, and home care settings for patients with chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, chronic o- osteoporosis, chronic non-maltrition, etc., sleep deterrences, and depression, Holy crap, it goes on and on and on and on. So it's saying music can basically help with mood in various ailments, and mood, positive mood, will help in recovery. That's just been proven factually. In all these settings, studies have frequently reported that the use of music is perceived as an effective and has been commonly employed locally. However, studies on the effect of music as a therapy for patients seem to be confined within institutional settings. For instance, surgical patients for music intervention were selected for pre- or post-operative procedures to those who suffer from anxiety. And those with mechanical ventilation and investigation into the use of musical intervention, the community setting for older adults could enhance understanding of the use of music intervention. Entrainment of body rhythms. Some studies indicated that music experts it's a, uh, exerts its effects through the entertainment of body and rhythm. Entertainment is defined as a tendency for those oscillating bodies to lock into phases and thus vibrate the harmony. This is like individuals pulsing heart music cells, which when they are brought closer together, begin pulsing in, syn- in synchrony. When a person is experiencing discomfort, anger, or stress, their body rhythm, such as bre- breath, heart rate, and blood flow, will change. In a person stressed or angry, adrenaline will be released from the adrenal medulla affecting their breathing and heart rate and leading to changes in blood pressure, respiratory rate, heart rate, and oxygen saturation. A study uh, showed that close relationship was found between music rhythm and uh, listeners' breathing or respiratory patterns. So maybe slow music might slow your breathing down. Other studies have suggested that its resolution may be experienced in the listeners uh, physiologically or emotionally. Their findings supported entrapment. So basically, all the studies I've read in this saying the same thing measurably physiologically there are differences in your body when you listen to music how we bring that out cognitively and realize how to use it usefully is a very different story it's only become more extensively researched uh, 
in the modern times. And it goes through the study. I'll skip the actual study. Though it is interesting. Uh, findings, demographics, and health history variables. There were 58 eligible participants. Again, I think it's a small sample size. And I think people need to stop doing that. They need to consolidate their studies with more people and less overall studies to get information quicker. Anyways, eight of whom refused to participate. Anyways, however, two participants in the experimental group refused to continue during the 30-minute intervention because they did not like the choice of music. Back in my day, this music is garbage. Anyways, also one participant in the control group refused to continue during to have no time when the baseline data was being collected. Blah, blah, blah. It's too statistical. I'm not going to read you that. Let me look at discussion. Let's just skip to the discussion. Because they're basically, when you're doing results, don't just do statistics if you want normal people to read it. Uh, music stimuli experts, uh, biology, meaningful effect on human behavior by engaging specific brain functions involving in a memory, learning and multiple motivational and emotional states, pointed out that music evokes psychological responses because of its influence on the limbic system. Hey, everything is connected. How many systems have I mentioned? How many parts of the brain have I mentioned? Right? Everything is connected. The fact that the perception of music leads to the string stirring of emotion experiences as an indicator that the limbic system is engaged in processing music stimuli and that this system is influenced by musical pitch and rhythm, etc. It goes on. Conclusion. Very short. Music intervention is a non-invasive and inexpensive nursing intervention. It may help nurses build therapeutic relationships with elderly patients, and nurses are encouraged to use music as part of their holistic caring for the patient. Study has shown music is an effective method for reducing psychological and depressive responses arising for the group. Right, so that's a very well done uh, study. I, did, I skipped a lot of it because I'm, to be honest, I'm getting a bit tired at this point of reading statistical stuff. But you get the idea. And again, this was from online library at wiley.com. Uh, and it's from a uh, Hong Kong University, right? International Journey of Mental Nursing is where it was original. Mental health for nursing was where it was originally posted. So this uh, series, this episode has gone somewhere where I didn't think it would go. And I kind of went all over the place. But to, to connect back in, I was using a story of my own, how I used music positively and negatively to enhance my life. Although in the stories I'm telling, I used it as a positive one to inspire me, to keep me out of a worse depression, and you can use it to enhance you. Because of how it interacts with the parts of your brain to do with addiction, it can keep you in a negative state through inadvertent, even though your physiological state is better, your mental state may not because you're being addicted to a thing. A negative state in your in your body and your behavior is connecting the state of being depressed with the positive feeling of the music, and so often again, that's why people will repeat negative music forever and ever to make themselves feel better, and it's a fucked up cycle. But you should use music as a tool to change your mood for the good. So I talked about a variety of studies, and I talked about my personal experience and how it can can use i am a very auditory person so i prefer listening to stuff than watching stuff unless you know it's a movie i like watching movies and stuff to get like narrative and build my learn teach myself narrative methodology just through doing it enough watching it enough but anyways how does music affect your life are you using it to enhance your mood or are you using it to keep a negative mood be conscious of what's going on because if you're not careful you're not healing 
Don't associate your identity with your disorder. Acknowledge it and figure out ways to grow and make your own identity that is you. I am John, hear me roar. Roar. Right? Con- be, be more confident. And the more confidence than you are, the no more you're going to know people are going to hate you no matter what you do. So th- the more confidence and in positive internal view you have, the less it bothers you, the more you just do. Now, I'm not infallible to this. I have days and moments where I'm just, I don't fit in and I struggle. And on those days, I will use music to enhance my mood. And you can see great positive benefits. So I hope that this episode has given you some perspective on how to utilize music and to think about how music affects your life. And are you using it in a positive way? So thank you for listening. And of course, if you want to support this podcast and more online content, you can click on the support us page of utcamblog.com forward slash support us. And you can either simply donate to us or you can simply, uh, you can do it a one time or monthly or annual. The more the better. Or you can sign up at utcamu to learn how I teach Krav Maga at least the novice and beginner curriculums, or you can click on the affiliate links under the support us banner. uh, And you can buy products that I support and use myself uh, and support this podcast. And you can get healthier mentally and physically in the process because I'm mostly putting up intellectual knowledge up there, links or uh, stuff I use to positively benefit my health. So I hope again, this has been a helpful podcast to understand music and its effects on brain and mood using my own sort of personal story as a narrative to move the information forward. So thank you for listening to this episode of Warrior's Day. You're listening to The Warrior's Day. Day. Brought to you by Urban Tactics Krav Maga. Turning lambs into lions.